Welcome everyone to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Because you won't find us on Google or Facebook, we respect your privacy and will continue to fight the Silicon Valley censorship. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we uh, have a return guest who was last with us about eight years ago now. Uh, and that's Dr. David Hanscom, who's an, uh, actually an orthopedic surgeon who has retired from doing surgery about uh, last year or sometime. And now he's focusing on a whole variety of different areas, especially that are relating to COVID-19. And he has some really interesting strategies. We've known for a long time now that <clears throat> with diet and exercise and other interventions, you can radically reduce your risk of COVID-19, especially things like vitamin D. But <clears throat> I don't think anyone would dispute that that stress is a, an enormously big factor, but it's typically given lip service. And, and Dr. Hanscom has some very specific, precise recommendations on how to address the stress. But we're going to embrace that in an overall discussion. So welcome and thank you for joining us today. Thank you, and I'm happy to be here. Yeah, so uh, maybe you can walk us through the transition you made from practicing orthopedic surgery and really uh, helping take care of many people with failed back surgeries and seeking to find alternative strategies to help them through the pain. And then, you know, what, what catalyzed the change into retiring and moving in a different direction? Well, I trained at a very high-level spine fellowship back in 1985-86 in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And it was a spinal deformity fellowship, which was complex surgery. There was also a lot of pediatrics in there. But what happened over the years is that I started dealing with more and more people with failed back surgery. And it kept getting worse and worse and worse. Then in the mid-1990s, they developed these instrumentations with cages and screws and plates. And I was part of that movement. Seattle had nine times rate of spine surgery per capita as any place in the entire country. And I was one of those enthusiasts. But in 1993, a paper came out that showed that the success rate of a fusion for back pain was 22%. So I just stopped. I go, well, this makes no sense. But I didn't know what to do. In the meantime, I developed my own chronic pain for about 15 years, which I think most physicians would call a severe burnout. But what was humbling, I went from a fearless surgeon to crippling anxiety in one day, had a panic attack. And once that happened, it was a disaster. And I started on a, I would say the quest ended this year. So it had been a 30-year quest to find out what happened that night on the bridge. I had a panic attack. Turns out that anxiety is an inflammatory disorder. It's a metabolic inflammatory disorder. And I had gone to psychotherapy for 13 years. Turns out that the unconscious brain is so powerful that you cannot counteract with the conscious brain and it got worse and worse and worse. And I came out of my accident in 2003. The last 10 years of neuroscience research has made it very clear the etiology of chronic pain. It's a neurological disorder. The last 10 years, instead of doing one and two level back fusions that didn't work, we're now doing eight, 10, 12, and 14 level fusions from the neck to the pelvis. 
And I would see three to five patients every week having surgeries done on normal spines or spines that had prior surgeries, 5, 10, 15. My record was 29 operations, watching a gentleman, 29 operations in 20 years. And once you have a failed spine surgery, it's a disaster. At the same time, through my own process out of chronic pain, I evolved the process called the DOC process, define your own, I'm sorry, direct your own care. And I was watching hundreds and hundreds of patients go to pain-free with no risk, minimal cost. And I was watching people undergo spine surgery that they didn't need. And I ran across a kid who's about 32 years old, my last year in practice, who was paralyzed from a surgery he didn't need, paralyzed. And that was it for me. I just said, I'm done. I'm not going to do this anymore. So I quit in January 2019, and I'm pursuing this project full blast. And it's just been really remarkable watching people get better, and it's getting getting increasingly discouraging to watch the aggressiveness of spine surgery really just spiral out of control. Interesting. So do you, <clears throat> with the, the pandemic now, and um, really a shift away from at least in the, the beginning of the, the pandemic, the shift away from anything but emergency surgeries. Have you seen a shift, uh, a change in the number of these surgeries being done? Well, I can tell you indirectly, I just saw a Wall Street Journal article about a week ago pointing out how many profit, how much profits the insurance company had not paying out for expensive procedures. I mean, probably 70% of spine surgery should not be done. And I can't tell you the exact numbers, but we're not doing elective surgery so much anymore. And I wanted to write an article about how much safer it is for people with back pain since we can't do elective spine surgery, but it's true. And I'm not sure I want to, how much I want to go into the politics of medicine right now, but the business of medicine is predatory where they're taking advantage of people. And the essence of solving chronic pain, by the way, is creating a sense of safety versus threat. And anxiety is a result of a threat. It's not the cause of the problem. And what the data shows is that only 10% of surgeons are actually acknowledging the risk factors to pretend poor outcomes before they perform surgery, 10%. And the outcomes are fear avoidance, anxiety, depression, catastrophizing, um, different medical problems, obesity, diabetes, blood pressure issues. None of those are addressed before surgery. You're making a life-threatening decision on the first visit. Now, when you make a decision like that on the first visit, you put a blind trust in a surgeon who doesn't know you, you don't know them. And I've been completely humbled. I mean, I think the solution chronic is a primary care problem. It's about creating safety. And the safety has to begin in the doctor's office. And one of my missions amongst many is probably to triple or quadruple the time spent talking to patients. You have to feel safe. And what happens, that's not a psychological construct. That is when you feel safe, there's a profound shift in your body's chemistry. You're going from adrenaline, cortisol, and histamines, and what we call inflammatory cytokines, to growth hormone, um, dopamine, serotonin, the GABA drugs, all these incredible, you know, critical, incredible hormones, and also anti-inflammatory cytokines. So there's a profound shift in the body's chemistry, and people's pain disappears. People that are pain-free, they don't just manage the pain, the pain disappears. So I'd like to stop for a moment and discuss what a cytokine is, because many people, many of us hear of the, the term, especially with respect to COVID, it became very popular, the cytokine storm. They have no concept of what a cytokine is. And just simply, it's a small molecule 
uh, typically a protein that serves as a regulatory modulator modulator for different systems. And you can have a a pro-inflammatory cytokine and an anti-inflammatory cytokine. And uh, they have a specific relevance to COVID-19. This is because they are so profoundly related to the immune system. So it's interesting how you share the similarities between the anxiety and the stress and these cytokines and how they impact pain. But I think this is, it seems like this is what likely led you into the recognition, the epiphany, the understanding, awareness that this also could have an enormous impact on one's susceptibility to COVID-19. Oh, it's huge. And we developed a work group. We meet once a week. Dr. Stephen Portis is the centerpiece of this group. He developed what's called polyvagal theory. And Dr. Portis and myself did not know about cytokines. I've been totally humbled. There's a friend of mine, Dr. David Clausen, who's a physiatrist in Seattle, that has an uncanny knack for pulling out cell biology, biochemistry, medical school knowledge. And I forget about cytokines completely. And so Dr. Clausen's knowledge of cytokines is unbelievable. I've learned more in four months than I've learned in 30 years since medical school. I mean, it's been unbelievable, actually 40 years since medical school. But, time flies when you're having fun. <laughs> I know. I just, yeah, time is just really a humbling experience also, amongst other things. But these cytokines are little proteins, are little amino acid chains that are very short, but they're everywhere. Every cell in the body of cytokines is how they talk to each other. So it turns out that the glial cells in the brain, the connective tissue in the brain, puts off cytokines. So do the endothelial, the endothelial cells, the linings of blood vessels, et cetera. So that's how the body speaks to each other. But when you have a threat, Surgeons think in terms of muscle tension, sweating, heart rate, et cetera. And that's to us is the threat response versus safety where you relax and regenerate. But what I didn't realize is that threat fires up the immune system and threat is all sorts of stuff. It's viruses, bacteria, cancer cells, a bully, a difficult boss, but also your thoughts, emotions, and repressed emotions are also the same threat. The neuroscience has shown us that those thoughts and emotions are processed in the brain the same way as a physical threat. It turns out that every degenerative disease is what Dr. Clausen says, the same soup. In other words, we know that cardiac disease, peripheral vascular disease, adult onset diabetes, obesity, Parkinson's, and Alzheimer's are just examples of an inflammatory disorder. It's all inflammatory. Then it turns out what blew, me out, blew my mind and what answered my question, how, how can I go literally from a fearless surgeon to a panic attack in one day? Well, as Dr. Porter's pointed out really succinctly that my autonomic nervous system became dysregulated. So it turns out that anxiety, bipolar, depression, schizophrenia are all inflammatory processes. It's inflammatory. It is not psychological. So remember, anxiety is a result of a threat. It's not the cause. So your threat creates a bodily response, which includes the immune system. And that sensation generated by the adrenaline and cortisol and these inflammatory cytokines, that's a sensation of anxiety. Since the unconscious brain processes about 20 million bits of information per second, 20 million, and the conscious brain only processes 40, you can't do it with mind over matter. Now that's four, just 40 bits, not 40 million. Four, four zero, right. 20 million versus 40. Okay. And I'm pretty clear, I'm open about this, even though in medicine we get penalized for this, is that I went to psychiatrists for 13 solid years and talked and talked and talked. 
and I support psychology and psychiatry in a big way, but it has to, but it, I got worse. And see, the solution for chronic pain is actually changing your brain to go a different direction. So if you're talking about the problem, you're actually reinforcing it. The way you decrease anxiety is simply decrease that stress response. And you do it direct means, mindfulness, meditation, relaxation, anti-inflammatory diet. And I've been, my wife gives me a hard time. I've been extremely nihilistic about a diet. And it's a big deal. The diet turns out to be a huge deal because if you're eating processed foods, and again, I, I'm not an expert at all, so I'm embarrassed in your presence, Dr. McCauley, even to talk about this, but I have learned that the anti-inflammatory diet is a big deal. And the aging process, again, I've ignored that, is a big deal because what happens when you're in a constant threat, i.e. inflammation, which includes processed foods, it, these inflammatory cells start destroying your body. That's why even degenerative arthritis, back pain, are also, they're showing the link between inflammation and these degenerative disorders. And then what Dr. Clausen has done, this friend of mine is somewhat of a genius, is looking also from a metabolic standpoint, that when your body is under constant threat, you need glucose to actually supply that. It could be that Alzheimer's in this degenerative process is the body robbing those tissues of glucose. So it's inflammatory, it's metabolic, but the bottom line is, is threat versus safety. And what we found out with the chronic pain is you lower your inflammatory markers, the pain disappears. Same thing with COVID is that you have inflammatory markers that the, the virus, of course, is the threat. You want your immune system to respond. And of course, the vast majority of people fight off the virus very quickly. But the elephant in the room, the obvious factor that has to be looked at is that almost every person that dies from COVID has quote risk factors. What I discovered again through Dr. Clausen is that every one of these risk factors has elevated inflammatory markers. So the idea is if you take charge of your health and lower those inflammatory markers, then when you have this normal cytokine rise, in other words, the cytokines is your defense against the bacteria. When you have this normal cytokine rise, then it stays below that threshold. If you hit a certain threshold, the the inflammatory response becomes too strong and you flood your lungs out. You drown in your own fluids because everything becomes inflamed. And so almost every person that's passed away from COVID has had some risk factor for this inflammatory process going out of control. Yeah. So just to under highlight and, and uh, bold some of the comments that you made, the, it's not that cytokines are intrinsically bad or evil. It is the balance that is the key or the ratio uh, is between the, the inflammatory and pro-inflammatory because you need inflammatory cytokines. They, right. If you didn't have them, you'd be dead. But if you right. have an excess amount, excessive amount, then you'd run into troubles. So, and, and just to comment too, also fill in some of the gaps and we can go on into Dr. Porges' work. Uh, with respect to the diet, it may not be intuitively obvious. I mean, you mentioned processed foods. Uh, so the reason those are so problematic is that typically they're very high in carbohydrates, which are not intrinsically bad at all. You know, we need carbohydrates. You'd be, I think your health would definitely not be optimal without them. But when you have a high percentage on a regular basis, then that leads to insulin resistance, which can lead to inflammatory cytokine production and increase in that. But right. even more importantly, the single most, the largest contributor from processed foods are the industrially processed omega-6 vegetable oils. And, and this is because they, they, for a variety of reasons, they get embedded in the cell membranes, they're not metabolized real easily, and they, they, 
actually contribute to in more inflammatory cytokines because they, they form uh, one of the base molecules of, of prostaglandins and it just pushes that in the wrong direction. So you've got to have your diet dialed in and we're not gonna go deep in this because I do that in many other podcasts and articles on the site. But what, what, what you really bring to the table and, and is, is a non-intuitive or obvious connection between the, the, the results of stress uh, not the results, but how stress can in negatively impact this balance of, of inflammatory cytokines. Right. So, and then you, you mentioned you work in Dr. Porges, and I think we should stop for a moment and have you discuss his work because he really is a, an a eminent pioneer in this field. And I've read his book, which was written in 1990, I believe, about polyvagal theory. Right. Uh, really is a profoundly important contribution to the science. And he's He's really an amazing guy. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about him? Well, he's a person we meet with every week. We talk to him. He's a wonderful guy. He's a psychologist, but he really is a behavioral neuroscientist. His wife, Sue Carter, by the way, is an oxytocin expert, one of the top five in the world. And when the two of them get on this Zoom meeting, it is remarkable what we learn. But what he's taught us is that the vagus nerve, which is the 10th cranial nerve, is essentially the autonomic nervous system. And in medical school, we were taught, well, this vagus nerve is like the brakes. It's like slows things down, helps the bowel and bladder function, et cetera. The sympathetic nervous system is what keeps us alive, keeps us moving, and keeps us out of danger. It's the response to a threat. But what he found out is that if there's always this parasympathetic break, the vagus nerve break on the sympathetic nervous system. In other words, if you didn't have a parasympathetic nervous system, your resting heart rate would be around 120. With this parasympathetic break, why it's about you know 60 to 80. And so we're under threat. The first thing that happens is that this break comes off and your heart speeds up, et cetera. And what he showed is that this vagus nerve goes both ways. In other words, we were taught that the vagus nerve just control things, but 80% of it comes into the brain, not the other direction. Vagus nerve is taking all this input and deciding what to do with your body there's a direct effect on metabolism, the endocrine system, your blood sugars, the cytokines. And so under threat, the sympathetic, the parasympathetic break comes off, the sympathetic stays, keeps at its baseline pace, and you're under threat. There's two parts of the vagus nerve. What is called the ventral part, where you're connected to facial muscles, the neck muscles. And what happens allows humans to socialize. It's called co-regulation is instinctively, we're a competitive species, you wanna stay alive. When I walk up to you, I look at your facial expressions, you look at mine, and we do what's called co-regulation, which calms down the autonomic nervous system. The problem with COVID is we have masks on, we can't see each other's faces, and we're socially isolated. As Dr. Porges points out, it dysregulates the autonomic nervous system. And when I had my panic attack, it was a dysregulated autonomic nervous system. In other words, I had this huge sympathetic charge as a full inflammatory cytokines. There's some question whether my panic attack was a cytokine storm. And then once that happened, I couldn't control it. So again, it's 20 million, 20 million bits of information per second compared to 40. The vagus nerve is in the middle of this whole thing. And what I'm excited about is that we look at stress as a psychological construct, and it is not. 
remember stress management is a misnomer because the stress that's the most stressful is the stress that you can't manage. It's a chronic stress. So what happens, you're in a chronic threat, your immune system is fired up, then people become socially isolated, which also fires up the immune system even more. So you can't co-regulate, you're socially isolated, your nerve conduction doubles, you feel the pain more. And when this autonomic response is sustained, there's over 30 physical symptoms that occur under chronic threat. I had 17 of these at the same time. I had migraine headaches, rain in my ears, skin rashes, stomach issues, back pain, neck pain, burning in my feet. I just went on and on and on. I had no idea what's going on. So again, the sensation is anxiety, which is not psychological, it's physiological. This stress response, stress isn't the problem, it's this physiological response to the threat. And the way you calm down anxiety is simply drop down the body's chemistry. That's what I learned sort of by accident. And then Dr. Porter just filled in the gaps. We've been researching this response to the environment for over 40 years. It's unbelievable. So for me, it's the end of a 30-year journey of how can I go from a fearless surgeon? And as I calmed down, all my symptoms disappeared, every one of them. So it's been a remarkable journey for me personally. And when I talked to you last time, I just had the vaguest hint of what was going on. I didn't know the neuroscience. I hadn't met Dr. Porges. But what happens when I can link the mindfulness? So when I do mindfulness, I'm actually directly lowering the cytokines. That's not psychological. That's a true effect on my body. Same thing with diet. So we talked in terms of all these, well, it's good for you, et cetera. But when you can link things like diet, relaxation, calming the nervous system down to your inflammatory cytokines, it makes a big difference. That's a long answer to which a simple question about linking these responses to your body's chemistry to me is a huge factor. Yeah, and it's an important piece of the puzzle for sure. And uh, it's great to see that you received some benefit from that. Uh, but for, for the most part, we've been discussing this at a, almost a, an academic or intellectual level as the, for the framework of how this works. But I think many people would be interested in more specific details of how to implement this and how to activate this vagal response, this repair, uh, restoration, and healing response that, we are, that is intrinsic to all of us, but in most of us, it has been impaired or hampered very, in many ways, very similar to the uh, decrease in metabolic flexibility and increase in insulin resistance that the bulk of the population has, like 90% is a result of choosing improper diet. Similarly, I believe there's a, there's a, a likely high percentage, as high a percentage for those who have not been able to access this vagal healing st- strategy. So why don't you discuss some of the, um, specific details on how we can do this. And I think before you do that, though, mention that uh, what I neglected to state earlier is that you've written a few uh, pamphlets, uh, I think two or three, that outline these in more detail. Uh, right. So that those will be available for download if, you, if anyone is interested in the specifics. Yeah, no, I do have a website, backincontrol.com, one word. That's the action plan of the book I wrote, Back in Control, a surgeon's room about acquired pain. I just released an app this week called The Dog Journey. And the exciting part about this process is that it's self-directed. The key issue to drop down your cytokines is to drop down your levels of stress chemicals, which basically drops your anxiety. So anxiety is number one. So there's some specific ways to do this. Number one, there's an exercise called expressive writing. 
And after a 15 year journey in chronic pain myself, it was the first exercise that broke things up with all my patients that come out of chronic pain. The expressive writing is the first step. There's over 1000 research papers documenting that expressive writing drops down viral load, improves academic performance, drops down inflammatory markers. It is unbelievable what this expressive writing does. The research was started back in 1980. Excuse me for a moment. I just want to interrupt here in it, because the way you're speaking, it's a little hard to understand. I just want to make sure it's, it's expressive writing. 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 Correct. Yeah. So it just it sounded like, wait, I know what that word is, but then I realized it was expressive writing. So yeah, right. it's a powerful tool. I've used it when I was in clinical practice too. It's amazing. So sorry for interrupting. Go ahead. So what it is, you simply write down your thoughts, tear them up. It's that simple. Now there's different types of expressive writing, but that's the most simple one. And you write them down and tear them up. And what it does, you can't escape your thoughts, but you can separate from them. And you tear them up for two reasons. One is to write with freedom, positive or negative. And the second one, which is more important, is to not analyze these things. Because they're just thoughts. There's trillions of thoughts. They're permanent. They're not going away. So if you want to analyze and try to fix them, you've actually reinforced them. So what you're trying to do is stimulate what's called neuroplasticity, which is awareness, separation, then redirecting. And so what the writing does, it creates awareness and separation in one move. The term I use is mechanical meditation. But for whatever reason, it's the number one starting point of dropping down your inflammatory markers. The second thing is sleep. And the writing does help sleep. That's why you have people start with the writing, but you have to get seven hours of sleep. It's a big deal. And chapter 14 of my book is all about sleep. There's a bunch of things you can do. The writing helps you to get to sleep. It doesn't keep you asleep. There's a bunch of sleep hygiene things you can do to get some sleep. So anxiety is number one. As you drop down the stress reaction, your sensation of anxiety drops. Sleep is a big deal. As you have less anxiety, you can sleep better. The expressive writing, again, is the core to this whole thing. But the next one, which is fascinating, and when I really began to heal, every one of my patients that heals from chronic pain practices forgiveness. There's a lot of actual research on forgiveness remember the antidote to anxiety is control. Something creates a threat, creates anxiety. You control yourself, the situation to survive. If you lose control, your body secretes in more stress chemicals, more cytokines, you become angry. So anger and anxiety are the same thing. So what happens, they found out that 90% of people in chronic pain have not let go of the situation that caused the problem in the first place. But interestingly enough, the person they haven't forgiven is themselves. So we find out that in this whole healing process, that anger and forgiveness is always a tipping point. And when you're angry, you're fired up, you're under constant threat, and you're trapped by anything, especially chronic pain or trapped in your house from COVID, you're frustrated. But what it's done is actually cranked up your inflammatory cytokines. Excellent. So there's a, you had a few more uh, components aside from that. Uh, actually, those, I guess that would be the best ones to address the specific stress. But then what I really uh, enjoyed about your program is that you didn't stop there. You, you know, unlike some people who uh, teach about stress management, they would address their strategies, but then fail to include some of the more comprehensive ones, which you alluded to earlier, but the things like intermittent fasting and certain supplements that you were, that you can right. take, which we're, was totally aligned with. So do you want to uh, go over those now? Yeah, I'd like to emphasize that the, the 
biggest message I want to get out there, anxiety is a physiological response to a threat. Your whole body's on fire. When you decrease anxiety, decrease cytokines, decrease that stress response. So again, if your body's inflamed, you're going to feel anxious. I read an article in December 2019, I'm embarrassed it's going to take me 50 years to figure this out, where they reviewed the data on intermittent fasting, which is a lot of different ways you can do that. I'm certainly not an expert on that. But I read this article as a dramatic effect on cancer, heart disease, all the inflammatory disorders you and I have just discussed. And I just said, I'm going to do this. I mean, I've been a diet nihilist. I'm a surgeon. Surgeons may have the wor- may have the worst diets in the world, as you well know. But I said, I'm going to do this. So within a day after I read that article, I, since I started my intermittent fasting, which you can do it five days regular diet, you know, good diet, and two days of fasting. Or what I do, I just simply skip breakfast and fast 16 hours a day. So I've lost a few pounds. But the key issue is for inflammatory markers, you don't have to lose a ton of weight. But the data on the intermittent fasting is profound. And I'm going, I would be crazy to ignore this. So again, as you drop inflammatory markers, your anxiety drops. So not only do you lower your cytokines and improve your chance of surviving COVID, you're actually dropping your anxiety because you're dropping your inflammation. It's remarkable. And even, so you don't have to lose 100 pounds to get healthier. You can go to an anti-inflammatory diet within six weeks, you're gonna drop your inflammatory markers significantly. Now, I'm gonna ask you that question. Is that a fair statement? That Yeah, there's no question. Yeah, and it depends on the individual, depends on how metabolically flexible you are before you've engaged in the process. But with respect to intermittent fasting, it, I think it's important to understand that that's a broad term and has many different meanings. So to clarify it, uh, the type you described is essentially the 5-2 diet, which has been really promoted by Michael Mosley in, in the UK, where you're eating higher quality food, but for two days of the week, typically the weekend, you would eat very little food. Then you have the Kristen Baraday out of the University of Illinois approach, which is an alternate day fasting. So you'll have your regular food, and then the, then the, the next day you'll have 500 calories, and you just continue to cycle through those. But what I think is one of the better strategies and the one I personally adopt is, is a time-restricted eating or TRE approach in which you, to, well, to first understand that 90% of the people in this country eat more than 12 hours a day and a fair number of them are, the only time they're not eating is when they are sleeping. And even then within that subpopulation, you still have people waking up at night and eating. So that's just a prescription for metabolic disaster. But, but it's, so if you start to decrease that window of time that you're eating from more than 12 hours down to six to eight and not do that overnight or instantly, but I think you know, that will engage the same type of metabolic benefits you describe and actually similar benefits that we know have been well described for longevity benefits with respect to calorie restriction without any of the pain uh, dangers or complications of, of compliance because you know the person who can adhere to a calorie restricted diet is few and far between, probably well less than one percent. And I don't think it's necessary. You can get the same benefits with intermittent fasting. So I couldn't applaud your recognition more, and I'm glad that you did that personally. And, and one of the what you talk about the ketones in the book, which is one of the benefits when you're metabolically flexible and you're not insulin resistant then you uh, awaken your body's ability to generate ketones, which are fat-soluble, water-soluble fats that typically generate in the liver that are easily transported into 
almost every tissue in your body, including your brain, because it just goes right through the blood-brain barrier with this MCT, this monocarboxylase transport, it gets it right in there. And, and prior to Dr. Cahill's, George Cahill's work at, at Harvard, who's since passed, everyone thought that sugar was the only fuel the brain survived of. But no, it works really, really well on ketones. It also works on lactate too, which is similar, but, but the, the benefits. But the key is that you can get these benefits by doing intermittent fasting. So why don't you expand on the ketone benefit, or at least your observation on its contribution to the stress response? Well, we also came up with a plan B where we feel we've come up with a protocol that actually solve the pandemic because it goes through every step of the viral stage and ketones are a big deal because the viruses don't like ketones, they like sugar. And so we feel like a big part of this protocol, which is now being researched in different centers, not my center, but in Baltimore and a couple other places in San Francisco, where ketone bodies, which are um, very anti-inflammatory, but also antiviral. And we think towards the end of a phase where people are really sick on the ventilators, et cetera, that we would be using ketones instead of sugar would be a marked benefit. But also just in your day-to-day life, why um, ketones are an anti-inflammatory, part of the anti-aging process. And I'll just ask you a question. I'm curious because as a specialist, I mean, I have such a, I'll use a word, I would say not neutral, even a little bit of a negative attitude towards diet and nutrition. Mm-hmm. And it turned out to be such a big deal. I, I'm just so blown away. We just aren't really taught this in medical school. And so it turns out that as far as COVID, I mean, you have to take from B, C, Vitamin D is a big deal. It's the number one deficiency in the world. Um, and then you have to take zinc and magnesium just for your enzymes to work. And we're just not taught this. I was, I've been shocked, honestly. It's been really fascinating to me as a surgeon to realize what a critical factor that diet and vitamins, et cetera, have been. But the anti-inflammatory diet for me is interesting because I cannot adhere to a diet, but it's not so hard. Just to skip breakfast. We, I do the time-restricted eating. And I feel great. I have to say, I feel really good. I'm surprised. It's, it's not so hard. It's not that hard. Yeah, yeah. So with respect to the ketones, uh, it's my understanding that th- these are just short-chain molecules, typically two, three, or four carbons long. Right. And not directly antiviral, antibacterial, but they, they uh, are generated when you have metabolism that is clearly going to help your body in that direction. Right. Uh, and, they, and they also catalyze these other, many other metabolic pathways, like their HD, HDAC1 inhibitors, which is, has a radical reduction of inflammation directly. They, in, in, they inhibit the NRLP3 inflammasome, uh, activate okay. NRF2, uh, FOXO3. So there's a, they have a lot of, you know, once you get these molecules circulating in your body, it's just almost nothing but good things happen. Unless, you know, there's exceptions to everything. If you're type 1 diabetic and your blood sugar is at 500 and you go into ketoacidosis, which is a totally different animal, then that, right. that could be life-threatening. But that, and that actually presented loads of problems, especially when Atkins started promoting his work. And there was this massive confusion between ketoacidosis, ketoacidosis and normal nutritional ketosis, which typically is differs by 300% in the level of ketones. Because like anything, if you get too much of something, it's going to be bad. So same thing with ketones. You don't really, it's really, really hard, unless you're fasting for more than a week, to get your ketones above six or seven, or taking exogenous ketone esters. So, but with ketoacidosis, you're going to get over 20, 20 millimoles per liter. So. 
Yeah, no, it's fascinating. It's really impressive that what the ketones could do compared to these high sugars. Oh, and of yeah. course, you know, the high processed food just flat out inflame your liver, which goes right into your gut. It's a big problem. Again, this surgeon, I have to admit, I've just sort of ignored this for my entire career. So it's been very, extremely enlightening for yeah. me how critical well, this is. Well, it's sad and, it, and you know, you're no different than many other surgical, any of your other surgical colleagues, which aren't really, I mean, physicians in general aren't given a lot of information on nutrition. No. We are. And, you know, it was my passion even before I went into medical school, even though at the time I was seriously misled, was under the uh, brainwashing of the uh, low fat diet approach at that time and high fiber, which I have a totally opposite position at this point. So, uh, but I still understood that nutrition was important. I mean, if if you think about it, it just doesn't make any sense why it wouldn't be, but it's, it's definitely been dropped in 1900 or so there was a deeper understanding of this one in medical schools but once the carnegie and foundation got in and changed things around and thanks to rockefeller they, you know they gradually got shifted out of the curriculum and replaced with more of a pharmacological uh, paradigm so other things that make a difference which is fascinating and this came out my wife and I and stepdaughter have done these workshops back in New York at the Omega Institute. And the three to five day workshops based on awareness, hope, forgiveness, and play. And 80% of people, every workshop, every time would actually go to pain free. We were shocked. So it turns out that social connection is a big deal. Structure is a big deal. But one of the basic rules we learned about at the workshop is never discuss your pain. Because when you're discussing your pain, you actually reinforce the pain circuits. One of the worst prognoses for chronic pain is actually belonging to a pain support group because people <laughs> talk about their pain. So the data shows that pretty clearly. So it's fascinating. I didn't realize until I went through this myself, but also talked to my workshop participants, people want to talk about their pain. Probably 80% of their waking hours are talking about some aspect of their pain. Well, what does that do? That's threat. Your brain's there. You're reinforcing those neurological circuits. So I'm not into positive thinking, which is a way of negative thinking, but I'm into a positive vision. So if you're a patient in my office, I say, look, when you walk walk out the door of my office, you will never discuss your pain or medical care again ever with anybody, especially your friends and family. Of course, your doctors, that's different, but stop. And just that one factor was a huge difference. We also say, look, quit complaining, no gossiping, no giving unasked for advice, no criticism, and quit watching the news. In other words, do things that keep your brain calm. Because again, this mental input directly stimulates inflammatory cytokines. And again, it's almost important as expressive writing simply not discussing your pain. Dramatic difference. So what you're doing, you're, decre- you're decreasing that threat response to your nervous system, directly lowering the cytokines, huge impact on people's pain, which is simply quit talking about it. Fascinating. Yeah, that, that is so important because uh, especially when you integrate a, a, a fact of neuroplasticity right. and essentially which it describes the process where neurological pathways that are continually stimulated tend to grow and become reinforced and facilitated and become much easier. Now, you can use it for a beneficial effect or it can be highly detrimental. And right. it's not intuitively obvious that participating in discussion of pain, which seems to be a natural tendency that, that people who have these issues want to do 
is one of the most counterproductive things you can do. So why don't you Absolutely. expand on the neuroplasticity component? Because I think it really provides a foundational framework of how to understand why this is so. Well, the metaphor I like to use is like learning a new language. In other words, if you're going to learn French, you're going to practice French, but you're not going to learn French by not speaking English. So when you can speak French, your brain changed. New cells, new connections, new myelin, all sorts of things happen when you learn a new skill. So with chronic pain, if you want to talk about your pain, you're going to reinforce those circuits. And what I ask my patients to do is say, look, create a vision of what you want, you look, what you want your life to look like, what do you want in it? Who do you want in it? What do you want to do? That's your vision. And as you pursue that vision with or without your pain, your brain actually changes. It's like installing a virtual desktop on your computer. And I'm now convinced you can rewire your brain around anything. I said a gentleman who had 20 years of chronic pain, suicide attempt, alcohol, narcotics. He had 27 surgeries in 20 years, 27. And he's now been pain-free for four years. Again, using the combination of tools we just discussed, I, I've just seen people with horrendous, I had over 120 patients with structural pinched nerves, spinal stenosis in their back. As we went through this process of calming down the nervous system, we call it prehab, rehab before surgery. I was asking my patients to go through this calming down process for at least eight to 12 weeks before surgery. They canceled their surgery. I put myself out of business, honestly. The only reason I made a living as a surgeon at the end was because of the opioid epidemic, because I was, I was operating on infected spines, which is sad. But as far as elective surgery, once you calm down this nervous system, people's pain goes away. So in neuroplasticity, you, you can create any set of circuits you want in your brain. I'm convinced now, even phantom limb pain, which I did not think was possible. And another gentleman, a gang member, angry as heck, really angry, really frustrated, started going through the process of calming things down, high-dose narcotics, his phantom limb pain disappeared. We've had that happen several times now with phantom limb pain disappearing. So the neuroplasticity of the brain is dramatic. Your brain changes every second, and you can actually direct it any direction that you want. So you're, with your work with Dr. Porges, have you, can you share any other specific recommendation he has to activate the parasympathetic system? I mean, you've, shared, you've given us some of the more important ones, but are there others that you could advise us on? Well, one that I've learned a lot and is very critical um, to um, what I don't have on this Thrive and Survive document, which I realized I didn't have, is that he's taught us about the um, direct stimulation of the vagus nerve with, for instance, deep breathing. You take deep breaths in, deep breaths out. The deep breathing exercises make a big difference on the parasympathetic nervous system. Mindfulness meditation relaxation, again, directly stimulates the parasympathetic nervous system. Humming, just low-grade humming stimulates the back of the throat and the pharynx and, again, calms down the nervous system. The, uh, he also has a device listening to music at the level like a lullaby-type music. directly stimulates the muscles to the middle ear, again. People put a cold washcloth on their forehead, and that, again, stimulates the fifth nerve and, again, stimulates the vagus nerve and actually calms down the nervous system. So this mindfulness meditation, relaxation, acupuncture, biofeedback, Again, for me as a surgeon, it's fascinating to realize that this isn't, quote, psychological. You're directly stimulating the vagus nerve and actually calm the whole thing down. So there's many types of breathing that can be used, and I'm wondering what your favorites are. Well, one of them was interesting is that I'm just slow breathing, not necessarily, not necessarily attentional breathing, but just slow breathing. 
just breathing less than, less than 10 breaths per minute will actually calm down the sympathetic nervous system. Then breathing, you know, a nice deep breath in, slow breath out, and get another easy one to do. And even just 30 seconds makes a difference to calm things down during the day. I also found out from his wife, um, Dr. Sue Carter, that when you breathe through your nose, you increase your levels of oxytocin by 1,500%. And oxytocin is a, what's called the love drug, is considered a lactation type drug, but it's actually the most common hormone in the body. It's in every cell, is strongly anti-inflammatory. We think it may be the reason why social bonding is such a great thing for chronic pain because it dramatically drops the inflammation, but just breathing through your nose actually increases levels of, levels of oxytocin. Terrific. So you, you mentioned that you had this plan B, and I think there's a plan A too, if I'm not mistaken. And you co-wrote the plan B with Dr. Porges. I think plan B, A was yours. Well, yeah, correct. Plan A was mine. The plan B was put together mostly with Dr. Porges and Dr. D.R. Clausen. And I'll take credit for getting these two people in the same room and talking, but they are brilliant. And what they recognize is that the way when we look at these different trials right now for the COVID crisis, we're throwing in steroids, we're throwing in antivirals, we're throwing these big guns at the virus, but we're not covering the basics. And that's why the COVID solution arose out of the chronic pain work because you, chronic pain is solvable. It's by systematically addressing all the factors that affect chronic pain. Chronic pain is solvable. Same thing with COVID by systematically addressing the fact that the vitamins are covered, anti-inflammatory diets are covered. Even if you don't, even if you haven't covered those bases and your inflammatory markers are up, there's things you can do in the hospital to actually drop down the inflammatory markers. For instance, deep breathing exercises, having family in the room holding your hand, a washcloth on the forehead. Um, all those things actually drop down the inflammatory markers. There's some dramatic case reports of family members being in the room, helping people calm down and people surviving. Ketones. So, so we, with the, the protocol is called Plan B. We feel it has a high chance of actually solving this pandemic by dropping mortality. But I think two of the biggest factors right now that you could probably address better than I can is that African-Americans are dying of COVID. As you know, they have less vitamin D than the average population. Vitamin D deficiency is the number one deficiency in the world. And with dark-skinned people, why they are competing for sunlight to convert vitamin D. So even though they don't have osteoporosis, they have lower vitamin D levels, number one. They also have fear of authority, poverty, lack of opportunity, which are also threats. So between the societal threats and lack of vitamin D, it's a huge, and magnesium, by the way, which works with vitamin D. Um, just by taking care of those factors from a public health basis, you would dramatically drop down the death rate from, in, in people that are African-American. So in elderly people, zinc, is a deficiency. You need zinc to be part of the proteins to actually kill the virus. It's like a metalloprotein. And so zinc is that critical factor that you need to do that. So the plan B is covering those bases first, then recruiting the parasympathetic nervous system. Then as the disease progresses, you can actually use vagal stimulation through the ear or through the forehead, or actually directly on the carotid artery. There's ways of actually recruiting the Vegas nerve actually helped calm down the sympathetic storm. Yeah. So, so when you first emailed me uh, about your plan, I was skeptical at, at, at best. <laughs> I said, oh, okay. 
what's this surgery going to do now with this thing? So, but I read and I was really impressed because you, as I mentioned earlier, integrated the nutritional components with the stress, which, which is absolutely essential to do. You can't have one without the other. Uh, and, I, and I've never really seen a more comprehensive approach specifically uh, addressed in COVID of, of ways to, to moderate the stress and, and lower that. You know, it's, it's, when you think about the death rate in the hospitals and, and the strategies they use, I, I just last week interviewed um, Aaron Marie Osleski, who is the epicenter nurse who was at the Elmhurst Hospital in New York at the height of the pandemic and literally firsthand witness to the atrocities that were being done in that hospital, but which are representative of many other hospitals. And one of the primary reasons is specifically a attest to this or, or, or uh, basically validates this process is that th they, the family members, no one was allowed to visit them. The only people that they had access to were the hospital staff and that was it. Right. So, I mean, what better prescription can you have for radically increasing stress to the roof? Right. I mean, it's no surprise that they had such a high mortality rate. Okay, so let me just, let me be a little cynical here. Okay, so that's one of the protocols is actually get the family members in the room. I mean, you need to stimulate the parasympathetic nervous system, which drops down the inflammation. But here's my cynicism. Okay, so you had COVID. By the way, I had COVID. I don't know if you knew that. I actually- I did not know that. No, I had COVID. I was sick for four days and better in a week. I have the antibodies and I, that was in March when it first started. So I've had the virus. And again, I think I got through it so quickly so I actually practice the things that I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, absolutely. You're a, te you're a testimony to application of these, the, this strategy. It works. It There's works. nothing wrong with this virus. Your body has, was designed to defeat these, the, the, not only COVID, but all these uh, SARS-CoV-2, but all the other viruses out there. You have the mechanism built within you to do it if you let your, give your body what it needs and was designed to have. And you're a classic example of that. And that's why I went. You're, you're at, how, old, how old are you now? I'm 68, I mean, you're 67. Yeah, you, you're definitely at risk. I mean, your age is a risk factor. It's no question. And I'm not underweight. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not quite the shape you are. But um, yeah, no. But I mean, that's the thing. I want to, do, I want to digress here just really. I mean, that would be my wish. Why well, actually quit surgery to do this? Is that medicine has to go to wellness, not illness. And what we should be doing right now on a public health basis is not Doing, I mean, we have to do more testing. It has to be better. No question about that. But why, when, when I ask African-Americans about vitamin D, they go, what are you talking about? So there's a whole public health effort that medicine has to do to make people healthy. It just has to happen. And we're paying for procedures that don't work. We're not talking to our patients. We're not creating safety there. We're not promoting lifestyles that create safety. We have to change medicine. It's got to change. Because right now, the illness models make a lot of money for big companies, but it's not helping people stay alive or thrive. And my brochure is called Thrive and Survive because we know stress kills people. I now know it's because of the cytokines and other markers. And so the key is that as you train your body to thrive, as you just said, you train your body to thrive, then you survive. People in chronic pain die on the average about seven years earlier than the average person. Seven years, that's a long time. Double heart disease, double depression, double anxiety, double the suicide. And it's all about this inflammatory markers. So that's one of my bigger pushes. I realize it's a big idea, but medicine has got to change its entire focus to wellness. 
and we wouldn't even be having this pandemic. You get a virus and you go home, right? Anyway, that's my little pulpit. Well, it's, it's uh, one that a rational person would have a hard time arguing with. But in many ways, I see the journey that you're on, uh, because I, I preceded you by a few years on that, and we're about the same age. Um, but, you know, I've been interested in nutrition for more than three decades. And, you know, I had a, shared a similar position. But once you study this more carefully, you realize that we're, we're in a stack, dealing with a stack deck, or uh, it's not a fair game because there are so many other interests involved here that most people have, are unaware of. There's technocracy, there's these uh, forces that are designed to essentially implement fear into the equation, which is, you mentioned earlier, one of the things that, that, that deactivates the parasympathetic and activates the, the sympathetic. And they, they engineered fear into, this, into the, our culture this year on steroids. And as a result of that, they've been able to engineer these r restrictions and lockdowns and mask wearing that they would have never been able to get away with had that fear not been there. But anyway, there's these forces that you're fighting against. And these forces are big and significant and they have many resources to influence and brainwash the population and they don't stop. Right. Uh, so, I mean, it's, it is a very difficult challenge and I'm, I'm not certain that there is a solution outside of a, a revolution because they've got such massive control at this point. Well, I mean, what I'm doing, I mean, I've gone through this several different phases of it, but I'm, I'm trying to find collaboration like people like yourself. I've, there's a growing group of people that do feel the same way. Patients are getting better. Yeah, people, right. I mean, if, I mean if you're impartial, you, there's no other rationalist choice. I mean, that's it the will, only conclusion. It will come from the public. I mean, doctors aren't going to do this. The business and medicine are certainly not going to do this. Um, but yeah, I wanted to say something, which is there's three ultimate solutions for chronic pain and COVID, by the way, which is the opposite of fear. One is play. Your body chemistry is in wonderful shape when you're at play, and that's a learned skill. And so the second thing is giving back. When, you're, you're, when your attention's on somebody else, it's a big difference as opposed to being focused on yourself. The third thing is they call it the spiritual journey, which I define as basically life perspective back. So once you get your perspective back and get your brain over here, then you, you're calm and regenerating, not fired up and under threat. So it's basically creating safety versus threat. And it's not so hard to do. And so that's, um, that's, that's sort of my, that's, it, it takes some steps to get there. But that, I think, eventually is a solution for chronic pain. Yeah, so not only do you get to radically lower your resistance or resistant, not, not lower your likelihood of getting the infection of COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2, but you actually will reduce any pain that you have. And then sadly, most people have pain, uh, which is pervasive. I don't, I don't know the stats. Personally, I haven't had pain for many, many, many years, uh, at least not chronic pain, you know, acutely if I stub my toe or something, of course, but, uh, you know, that's a normal response. So what, what are the stats on chronic pain? Oh, there's about 100 million people with chronic pain and about 30 million have disabling chronic pain. 
my observation that it's grossly underestimated because anxiety, the mental pain is a much bigger problem than the physical pain and because you can't escape it. And so the anxiety, I wrote, a, I actually blog for psychology today. The blog is called anxiety. Another name for pain. Now, if I give my patients a choice to get rid of their leg pain or arm pain with surgery versus getting rid of their anxiety, they want to get rid of the anxiety. Same thing with me. I have arthritis in my hips and knees. It hurts some days pretty badly, but I don't have the anxiety. And so if you look at anxiety as a human condition, it's pretty universal. And that's what's so much fun about the process. If you quit fighting these unconscious powerful circuits, you really can thrive. Well, that's great. Well, I want to congratulate you for your efforts, for your evolution as a physician. Uh, you've made a transition that most physicians don't. I would say it's far under 10% that are actually able to uh, understand and appreciate the, the fundamental reasons why they got into this business to begin with, to help people, and that typically their strategies are, are just miserable failures not because they're inept as a physician, they are just implementing strategies which just fail to address the fundamental reasons of the pro uh, that are causing the problems they're treating. Right, so right. you've made the transition and, and you've come up with a really terrific collection of strategies that can help so many people in so many areas of pain and also reduction of their risk for SARS-CoV-2. Yeah, I'm excited about it. You know, the data shows only 20% of physicians are comfortable treating chronic pain and less than 1% enjoy it. And I was one of those people who would just get frustrated with it. We're not trained at all with this. I have a fourth year medical student in my round table. She hasn't heard of any of this stuff. Nutrition information, nothing. So we're not trained in a way that's productive. We're throwing random solutions at complex problems where the root cause is this inflamed nervous system. And so we're throwing really quick treatments as symptoms instead of going after the root cause, like you just said. And what's exciting for me is that not only do people come out of pain, their anxiety drops to the floor, and they really thrive at a level that they never knew existed even before they went into pain, and myself included. I mean, I was in chronic pain for 15 years. I'm living a life I never dreamed was possible. And so it becomes by far away the most rewarding part of my practice as opposed to being something, well, what do I do next? So yeah, it's been a remarkable transition for me and I'm very excited about, I'm not happy I went through the chronic pain, I gotta tell you that, but. No, no, I, I, would, I would correct you on that one. I would embrace it and be glad and be grateful, so grateful because it's really what catalyzed your transition morphing into a more uh, broadly knowledgeable healer, healer, a clinician who really gets it at a higher level. And I mean, some of the, it's, it's like being an inverse paranoid. They're, another name for it is pronoia, where you are just... What did you call it? Gratitude. Pronoia? Pronoia. P-R-O-N-O-I-A. Okay. It's a real term. You can look it up. And it's not made up. And it really describes this process where you ha are so deeply appreciative for the challenges that come into your life. And, and you, it, pain can be one of them. And it certainly is. And, and knowing that it's because of that challenge, it's morphing you and changing your life in some profoundly beneficial way that at the time you're going through, you have no idea of what it's doing, but it does. And in retrospect, it's easy to see. You're in the retrospective scope now. So I, I would just shift that to massive gratitude that you had that.
No, I, I agree. I agree. That's a great point. I do feel extraordinarily honored to be able to pass this on to other people. I mean, I, I this, we have hundred, well over fifteen hundred people that are just flat out pain free. Yeah, yeah. And I'm serious. Sure fifty is crazy. There are many doctors in their whole lifetime who can't help fifteen hundred people out of pain. No, it's exciting. I mean, incredibly rewarding. I'm, I'm incredibly grateful, and um, and so you know, again, the contrast between. People damaged by the medical profession versus going to pain-free. I, I couldn't do it anymore. So no, I, I agree. I, I am. Um, well, you, you know, you're, you're, you're only 68. You got a lot of years in front of you. So right. I want to extend my sincere appreciation and gratitude to you for for helping so many people, and really even more so for serving as an example to other physicians of what they can and should be doing, because they really need to examine their current strategies. And, and think hard about why it's failing in so many cases. Because if you're using a conventional approach, it's almost, that's almost universally directed at symptomatic Band-Aid treatments. It's going to fail. There's no question. If they're honest and objective, they're going to have to admit it failed. So if, if you can inspire other physicians to do that, that's a, a double victory. Because the physicians, of course, it's a highly leveraged scenario because they're going to affect so many other individuals themselves. Well, and I think it's particularly true in spine surgery where, I mean, not only are you doing an intervention that's sort of random, I mean, people really are damaged badly by spine surgery. And so it became such a, spine surgery is a big problem. There's, there's probably a few things worse than a failed back surgery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No question about it. So, and the best way to treat something is preventively before right. it's so much easier. Right. You know, at right. least it's like an ounce of an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And it's a well, 16 and really, to one ratio. And I think that's pretty valid. Yeah. And I really applaud your efforts. I mean, I, you know, I uh, watched them over the years and, you know, it's a, uh, it's a big difference. And as you know, we're not necessarily welcomed by the medical profession and the big level. <laughs> the public that, is that, really, yeah. But the that's an understatement. Is, yeah. <laughs> But the public's engaged in it slowly. And I think the public's getting an idea that yeah, things aren't quite right at home. And so, yeah, no, I applaud your efforts also. I think it's just it's a wonderful It's, it's still a challenge, though, because they, they, the technology has improved so much in artificial intelligence, their ability to acquire data and really manipulate behavior has changed effectively, especially through things like artificial intelligence and deep learning that they have so effectively brainwashed the population that it's difficult to, even though the message is so clear if you're objective and sane and not, and not prejudiced in, in a way to look at it, but that's not the case. They've got virtually everyone convinced of this narrative that it's just a, it's just a lie the, from, the whole, from the beginning to the end. Uh, and and you know, so it's a challenge we're up against that, but it's okay. You know, it is what it is. And just be grateful that you had the opportunity to make a difference because, right. you know, I, I, I'm... So it's one of my guiding principles of life, life is to be grateful. And, uh, you know, it's such a powerful thing. It's just, it's like fertilizer for life. It really, really helps your body, your mind, your spirit, your soul. It's just yeah, it's such a powerful, power, powerful strategy. Well, again, people think in terms of psychology with gratitude, but actually it cranks up your anti-inflammatory cytokines. I mean, obviously there's some psychological benefits, but actually has a direct physiological effect on the body, right? Yes, sure does. So that link to me has been really important, actually understanding after 30 years of searching, you know, why did this happen? And it's so clear that what you can do externally is just a direct effect on your body's, you know, function. It's, it's really been remarkable. 
All right. Well, this has been great. We will have links so that anyone who wants to can download your material. They're ready for. They're not a book, so it's it's an easy read. Uh, part A is a lot easier than Part B, which is Dr. Porch's, which really goes more into the deep science of polyvagal theory, but still good if you're interested in the subject. And I and I and he's and Dr. Porch has written a book too. And if you're even more interested, you can pick up that book. But he's done some fascinating work, and it's not just for a treatment of acute disease. It's really for optimizing your health because the rest and recovery element is really one that is not well addressed at all. I mean, nutrition is better addressed than, than rest and recovery from my viewpoint, because it, it's not as easy to understand or implement. It's, there's a lot of variables in there. So, but anyway, he does, you, he's done some good work and I'm so glad you're uh, collaborating with him. The other thing, if, if it's, um, I like to encourage people, we just put this app out this week called the docjourney.com. And what is it now, Dot Journey? The DOC journey dot. Oh, doc journey. Okay. Which yeah, is direct, that's an acronym for direct your own care. Direct your own care. And my wife basically kicked me off the project. And so what happened? Okay. She looked at my work. She goes, that's not an app. And so it's creative is about music connection. So it's designed to create the experience of feeling safe. It's about play. And so play doesn't sound very medical, but guess what? It's one of the ultimate ways of actually healing your body and regenerating is to relax. And so the app will take you through a steps of actually some, we'll call somatic work of calming things down, breathing, et cetera. And it's very concise. And I, I think something that will be very effective. Okay. Well, good. We'll put a link to that too. So thanks again and uh, keep up good work. Thank you.